Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Anne Rada this week. Now, she started her career as a professional musician, so we talk a lot about that and her love of music, but we also get into a whole bunch of other topics, including the work she does today, helping groups with their strategy and future direction. I know you're going to enjoy this interview. This interview now joins the back catalog of more than 180 interviews because I'm trying to build up a database, a collection, if you like, of people's life journeys and understand what it is that we can learn from each other. If you enjoy it, you might want to check out the website, theseeds.nz, and there's also a LinkedIn page and a Facebook page. Now, one of the things I love about doing Seeds podcast is that I often hear about collaborations that result between guests or between a guest and somebody who's heard an episode and reached out to them. And this actually happened to me with Anne, because as you'll see during the interview, we talk about the role of boards and in particular creatives and what people who are creative can bring to governance. So we decided after we recorded this interview to do a white paper together and right in the middle now of finalizing that. So be watching out for it because that's going to come out in the next few weeks. Now let's get into this interview with Anne. All right. So it's a pleasure to welcome Anne Rada, who's a not-for-profit and cultural advisor. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's, um, it's great to have you on the show. Um, as you know, the Seeds podcast, we really go every week with different topics. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by your own life journey, because mm-hmm. I know it involves a lot of music, culture, and arts. And yeah. some of my previous guests have been, you know, entrepreneurs or software developers or different things like that. And I love to have diversity. So I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit about your own journey and what you're doing today. Um, but before we do that, I love to go back in time. So we've got a little um, time travel machine over here. Um, <laughs> what, what was it like for you growing up? Where, where are you from and what was your childhood like? Um, well, let's see. Um, my early years, we, my family lived in Italy, in northern Italy, and my younger sister was born there. And then when my family moved back to the United States a few years in Seattle, and my mother credits the weather there to her divorce. So <laughs> my folks split, um, my sister, my mom, and I moved to Tucson, Arizona, and that's really where I grew up. So Tucson is just one hour north of the Mexican border and so highly influenced with the culture and the language and the chili and um, it's mountainous. It's kind of the bottom of the Rocky Mountains. So, um, you know, the saguaro cactus, the one with the big arms, that's that's my, the terrain that I grew up in. Right. So So I spent my schooling years there and... um, And Just a quick question that Italy experienced. Do you remember Italy? Were you old enough to remember or were you quite young at that point? And what took you to Italy? Why were you there? I have some lasting, my dad was an accountant and um, there was a scheme in the United States when he was at university where he could um, repay, the Air Force paid his college tuition and then he gave the Air Force two years, but they wanted an overseas posting. And um, so he was an accountant for the Air Force for a couple of years. And um, my parents chose to live in the town instead of on the base. Um, and so Italian was my first language. And um, I'm, in, I'm in regular contact now with Maria Grazia, who was my babysitter. 
Um, she was a 16-year-old girl that lived across the street. So I actually wrote to her last night. We have friends who are farmers who dropped off some radicchio and more than we can kind of manage. So we were asking Maria Grazia for some recipes. Right. <laughs> what do I do with this? Huh? <laughs> I, well, exactly. I know. My yeah. husband's a great cook, but we're kind of running out of options, I think. <laughs> wow. So yeah. how old were you then at that young age? Because, um, you know, learning Italian is your first you know, first language. If I've had a glass of wine, it comes a bit more, <laughs> more easily to me. Yeah. Um, we left when I was four. So it, yeah. And then my mother says I was reluctant to speak Italian back in America because nobody right. else did. And um, it's in a drawer somewhere. I studied at university and had a summer in Siena. And by the end of this summer, I was dreaming in Italian. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it's not really there, not consistently. Yeah. But when I'm there, it comes up more. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting to me because obviously we're both in New Zealand now. And I do wonder when you look back at people's lives, if they're more open to the idea of quite a bigger world based oh, on some yeah. of those early childhood experiences, you know, that, that you were only four yeah. and you were off. But look, I, I think of this a lot in terms of my family because both of my parents, well, and even their, their parents had kind of, gone west you know they'd been in Michigan or in um, other places like that you know the midwest or farther east mm -hmm. and they had made bold steps to move west my um, husband's father Ron was the oldest son on an apple farm and no one had ever been to university but he decided apple farming wasn't for him and ended up a nuclear physicist at Stanford doing his PhD. And then that's why they settled in um, New Mexico. Right. So our parents moved West and then um, we've moved about as far West, I think. Yeah. Continued the trajectory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, so um, yeah, we feel really lucky, particularly during this COVID lockdown that um, technology is so um, easy and affordable. You know, when we came here first, we were we thought we were clever because we found a company where we could buy a phone card and it made telephoning, what was it, 30 cents a minute or something like that? Right, and so yeah. you still had to structure your conversations. And yeah, I remember those days, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So yeah I think incredible. What is this, 24, 24, 25 years now we've been in New Zealand. And except for one year in, in um, Sydney, we've been here the whole time. Yeah. So just taking us back to yeah. your early days and growing up with the cactuses around and things, <laughs> yeah. um, what sort of things interested you? I know music played a key yeah. role in your life. Yeah. Was that from a very yeah. early age as well? Or? Yeah, I think I was probably six when my mum put a cello in my hand it was her favorite instrument and um, she was a music teacher and is a pianist and so that was no big leap there mm -hmm. um, it stuck with me my sister was put on a viola and it didn't stick with her she's a dancer mm -hmm. and she's actually a theater professor in San Diego now mm -hmm. um, so it was music and school um, and swim team, you know, that's every, you don't have playgrounds in Tucson, you have swimming pools. So that's where our community was. We had um, neighborhood swimming pools and that's where we'd spend our time. So I was a lifeguard and a swimmer. And um, so my, my schooling year, you know, when I was at primary school and intermediate, I was just that um, stick insect with a cello on her back walking around. <laughs> Total, total nerd, total goody two-shoe. Um, and, and did you know, like, 
it was your mother's favorite instrument. Did it become your favorite instrument? Like, when did you realize that this was something that you wanted to study? Yeah, well, look, I, um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because I didn't intend to be a professional musician. Um, right. I was a big fish in a little pond in Tucson. It's not really a cultural mecca mm-hmm. um, for European music. And so I didn't have a peer group that was particularly challenging and it came easily to me. And I obviously loved the music and I must have had a degree of talent for it and a good teacher. Um, but when I got to university, I didn't fancy being a cellist. Um, and what I what I pursued, I did a kind of a liberal arts start. I pursued a degree that didn't exist yet. So this is aging me, I know, but um, all those decades ago, there was no formal degree in arts management. Um, oh, yeah. There were a couple, I think there were four graduate programs in the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I built certain classes and did certain projects to give me the background so that I'd be prepared to enter at a graduate level doing a master's degree. I think it was one at UCLA that I was interested in. Um, But somewhere when I was about 21, I suppose, it would be in my third year at university for a four-year degree Mm -hmm. that was going to be just liberal arts or I can't remember what it was called. Um, I decided I'd better go and really exhaust what the cello meant to me. So I went to the Aspen Music Festival, which is huge. And they call it Juilliard West because pretty much all the faculty from Juilliard goes to the mountains and um, spent a summer there trying to figure out, did I want to do it? And if so, was I good enough? And then what I did with it. And so that's when I made the decision. It was, I had to, I had to give music a go, a real go, it was cello. So I went back to Tucson and then, that was at my final year at university and, you know, did the, all of the kind of practicing I should have been doing all through my teens and right. <laughs> you know, the six or eight hours a day in the music studio. Yeah. I made some good headway. Um, and then um, didn't get into the music school. You know, I wanted, I thought I wanted to go to Juilliard cause I was in love with the clarinetist there at the time. Um, And so I didn't get into that. And I was a little crestfallen and wandering. And Yo-Yo Ma happened to come to Tucson um, to play a concert. And I was doing an internship with the University of Arizona. um, And part of that responsibility was looking after the artist. So I met him at the limousine at the airport. And because he's Yo-Yo Ma, he's just the most generous, lovely man. He said, um, you know, oh, you play the cello. Tell me more about it. And he asked me to send him a tape, which I did. And he made some great suggestions and made some introductions for me and said, whatever you do, don't waste the summer. So I went back to Aspen since I had, um, I I knew the ropes there and I had already been a student. And the teacher that I studied with looked at me and said, why don't you come to Cleveland where I teach? And it was just this moment. I have no idea why I hadn't considered that before. Right. So um, it just, it made so much sense. Cleveland is just, the weather is atrocious. It's terribly cold and terribly gloomy and very affordable. So <laughs> it's a really good place to go to a music conservatory because no, you stay inside and practice all the time anyhow. So yeah. I can went I ask you, Can I ask you some questions? Because we'll, we'll keep talking because it's wonderful. But I'm just curious. I always love to look at events in people's lives and reflect yeah. on them. And in yeah. particular, obviously, Yo-Yo Ma is well known, like even people who don't know about 
classical music, probably heard of him. Um, So I'm just thinking about the intersection there, you know, a moment in your life that was touched by what he did. Um, Can you just unpack that a bit more for us? You were at the airport. How were you feeling? Yeah. If I hadn't run into him, I probably would have gone, I'd been given a very lucrative offer to go to a school in um, Southern Ohio that had a good teacher, just not a particularly strong program, but I would have made money going to study there and I would have probably gone down the academic route. and potentially this kind of, um, do I want to be a performer? How does that look? Am I, am I going to get the chance to do it? Would have always been resonating in the back of my head. Right. Um, so it really was that, that hour with him in a car. And he's so affable. You know, he's just, when you see him on video, you hear him introduced, you know, he's an, he's an artist and a humanitarian and a huge thinker. And I don't think the man never smiles. He always smiles. He's, I've never seen him anytime without sheer joy on his face. And when you see videos of him when he was, what, seven or eight years old and had just, his family moved to New York City so he could, from um, China, you know, that was a big leap back then. Um, he was playing the cello with this rapturous joy on his face. Yeah. That, um, That's the impression I get. And obviously, I, won't, I haven't even been to a live concert of him. I've, like, you know, just seen performances. But yeah. it's almost like the energy sort of flows through his whole being into yeah. the music, isn't it? It's yeah. a... It's a a level of performance, I guess. So true. Yeah. So if it hadn't been for that, I would have gone probably the academic route instead um, and probably would have done arts management formally, Mm. you know, um, because that's, that's what I've been good at. And um, I ended up falling backwards into it, but with the really good foundation of an excellent music education at uh, Cleveland Institute of Music. And having actually had the rigor of of the six to eight hours of practice a day, you knew what that involved rather than the (laughs) academic sort of... Lofty, theoretical, yeah. Um, Yeah, I've got street cred, I think, is what it comes down to. And a real empathy and understanding of the musician and the artist mindset also, Mm. the result. And I married a musician, so I can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting (laughs) to me, though, that the Yo-Yo Ma, you know, um, because in a way, I love to highlight those stories and those moments because Mm. it's, it's about mentors. It's about giving back to other people, isn't it? That, yeah. that sometimes people can see in us the potential that we can't see ourselves. So the, the point I'm making is that the people listening, who are the people in their lives that they can be the equivalent of what Yo-Yo Ma was for you? You know, having the vision to actually encourage this teenager or this young person yeah. to say, yeah. you should try this, you should do it. And it sounds like that's what Yo-Yo Ma was able to provide for you to kind of inspire you to, to keep going. Very true. And for him to do that, not only did he have to have some wisdom and some common sense, but he had to, he had to spend a bit of time investing in someone else. And maybe that's the outtake for all of this is, you know, if you can let go of yourself in your own world for a little bit and, and be curious and interested in someone else's, then you can yeah. make a huge difference. Yeah, that's right. So I have a question, uh, speaking of curiosity, because I have never become a professional musician and never studied for that six to eight hours a day and things. Can you just describe, I guess, what 
what what that's like because <laughs> how, how <laughs> yeah. do you you know is it three hours in the morning and then four hours later or how do you manage your day and and what yeah. is it that you're actually how does it improve you like I assume you would know if somebody was practicing three hours a day as opposed to eight hours a day right same way that a professional tennis player would yeah. you know need to do that but can you just talk us through that a little bit because I'm really well, yeah, you're um, paralleling it to an athlete is absolutely correct because musicians and dancers um, and other people that are, there's a physicality to it. It is, it's training. A lot of it is just sheer muscle development and muscle memory so that, um, you know, if you're shifting up the neck of the cello, you can always hit the F sharp because you've done it 10,000 times. Yeah. Um, so uh, some of it's that. Um, Let's see, a six-hour practice day. Gosh, this is going back a long time, Stephen. Six-hour practice day. I think the, kind of the rule of thumb is it's really hard to concentrate on anything for more than about 90 minutes. Um, and then because it's really hard on your body, you've got to get up and move. And right. when you're a teenager, your body works, um, but you can develop some bad habits, of course. And um, <laughs> teenagers and people in the early 20s think they're impervious and they don't necessarily do the body care that's needed but more and more conservatories are teaching it now right. um and so yeah i never had the luxury of only um studying i've always had to work alongside it to support myself so oh. i would tend to get my practicing done in the morning and whatever kind of administrative stuff and then i was a really wicked good waitress and bartender mm -hmm. so i usually did the evening or the dinner shift um which gave me the days to practice and i taught private lessons during the day also and then i would usually go to um, a restaurant maybe four nights a week and work from four o'clock to midnight or whatever yeah um yeah so, I, so I you just fit it in and if that's your passion <laughs> and that's what you want to re get really good at that's yeah, what you do, right? And I guess it's the repetition, like you say, if you've if you've practiced that note ten thousand yeah. times, it's just yeah. becomes a part of you. It does. There's um, some extraordinary talent, and you know, I know in my own professional and personal life of these just savants that don't need to put the time in. I wasn't one of those. You know, I had I had some catching up to do coming out of Tucson and. Um, you know, into a big pond, mm -hmm. but the, you know, a really good teacher, a private teacher and, and music lessons, you know, usually are taught one-on-one. -on -one. Um, they, they f encourage, inspire you to teach yourself. And that's the best thing. Cause then when you leave a curated structured environment, like a conservatory, then you've mm -hmm. got the tools to continue to grow as an artist. And the repertoire itself is such a great, guide and a, and a pathway to mm -hmm. if you want to play a certain concerto um then you, you do it because you love it and so you you dig deep into it and you mm -hmm. learn the context and the language and um all of that that, that helps yeah. make it an interesting piece to play and hopefully for someone to listen to yeah so what what makes a good teacher the teacher you just just described that is able to impart the curiosity and learning after the lesson Having mm -hmm. been taught by a number of people, what is it? Yeah. What are the best characteristics, or what is it that makes them able to do? Well, I think part of it is teaching a language, um, and I'm t talking general education right now. Um, yeah. You know, I know that I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but some of my professional life has been in the education sector, and 
it's fine to give agency and student voice and all of that, but if the student doesn't actually have the language to express it, then there's a, um, it, it's, it's halted. Um, so some of that's language in music. It's a musical language um, and not just reading music. That's a given, but the terminology, but also the way of understanding it and the contextualizing it. Um, and I think an excellent teacher is a guide and opens doors, but helps maybe light the, you know, like on the airplane when it's a danger and the lights go on to show you the exit path. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's something like that, that, that provides the guidance, um, but also the kind of the steam behind it. Mm. Um, not every student, whether it's in music or anything else is, you know, there's a degree of self-motivation and some people need it when they're 22 and some people can handle it when they're 12. And so it's understanding the student and mm. their needs in the individual needs and then making a custom program for their development. Yeah. That would, yeah, yeah, I hear you. That would be the best teacher, right? To look at the person holistically rather than another student. Yeah, yeah and rather than just um, a dollar sign. Yeah. 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 That's good. So did you, after studying, did you then become a professional musician or what, what happened next? Yeah, so um, fortunately, um, well, so I met my husband in Cleveland. Um, he's also from the desert, from Albuquerque. And... Uh, we justified the decision, in, just that. Uh, yeah, yeah it was, we met about enchiladas, actually, but that's a different story. Right. Um, yeah, so we moved to Boston. He'd been a student there, and um, I was doing more and more playing, um, had a good teaching studio. He played solely. I was able to do less and less waitressing, <laughs> and then finally no waitressing. But part of what happened when I was doing that is I – fell back into arts management. So I'd done all these papers and done kind of some preparatory work for it, but then I hadn't exercised it. I just spent 10 years being a cellist. Right. Um, but the workload and therefore the income tends to dry up in the summer months. You know, in North America, you have June, July and August where there's, you know, orchestra seasons and schools are out of session, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So um, I got, I fell back into working for music festivals in the management side of things. So um, I worked for summer at Spoleto mm -hmm. um, and then went to the Breckenridge Music Festival. And that's probably where I cut my teeth professionally. I had a huge role. Um, I was young, I was kind of 22, 23 at the time with two orchestras that I had to accommodate seven concerts and a little mini tour every week. Um, and I was responsible for all of the production of that and and telling sage sagely irritated musicians um, where to go and what to do. And right. um, didn't get that one right all the time at the beginning. I learned that some... But I guess it, it, it probably helped, as you said before, that you had the street credentials that, mm -hmm. hey, I, I've sat where you're sitting, so okay. I, I kind of yeah. get what, what you're going through or whatever. Mm. Okay. Can I ask a question? Just uh, uh, We won't go into depth here, but just actually playing on a stage mm. with an orchestra, you know, can you describe that for us? Because not all of us have had that experience. I certainly haven't. Um, what are the bits that you really loved or enjoyed about it? Because when I listen and, and see an orchestra, it's just, yeah. it's such an amazing thing that yeah. <laughs> these diverse ranging people, instruments, sounds, 
coming together, following the music and boom, you get this, you know, explosion of sound that somehow makes sense. But from your perspective, actually playing on the stage, what's, what's that like or what do you enjoy the most? Well, I really miss it because I'm not doing it now. Now that you're mentioning it and I'm thinking about it, um, what I loved about it, um, so the cellos tend to sit in front of the bass section. And if it's a good bass section, it's like they create this groove and you sit inside the groove and it's this just carpet of rich sound and pulse and rhythm. Laying the foundations, right? Absolutely. And so a lot of times the cello plays the bass line also, but just one octave higher. And so you're part of this, you know, rumble in the jungle. (laughs) It's seriously amazing. But then cello also has very lyrical possibilities. And so composers like Brahms and Dvorak, um, you know, just wrote these most gorgeous um, melodies for the cello line. Mm. Um, And so you soar up above and the cello is the instrument that's most akin to the human voice in terms of range. So um, it's, it's thrilling to be one of 90 people doing the same thing at the same time. Mm. Um, And you're right. The volume can be overwhelming. I mean, it's not necessarily good for, um, ear health but it's absolutely thrilling because you feel it you know when you've got an end pin or a spike as they call it here that goes into the ground into the wooden floor that means that the whole floor is reverberating it's thrilling it really is and so i'm enjoying it as from an audience point of view now but if i'm listening to beethoven's the most where my fingers start twitching again that's the one i want to play the most any beethoven yeah yeah oh that's good it's good to hear because yeah, like I say, well, the vast majority, I can guarantee you, of the listeners will not have sat there on the stage actually playing. So it's just yeah. good to hear that dynamic. It's, it's thrilling, yeah. And can I have a, this is a rabbit hole type of question, but you mentioned a couple of times that you were doing waitressing and mm. that that was a, you know, that, that you were good at waitressing. I'm just thinking, because in my mind, those service jobs, you know, where you're dealing with the public, you're you're, you're welcoming people, you're you're talking with them. To what extent do you think that job helped prepare you for the things that you've done since in terms of people, people skills and, you know, yeah, I'm just curious if, if, for your reflections on that. I never, I never considered that because it was just a a way to pay the rent basically. But the, the, the skills that I think the thing that made me a good waitress is that I, and just really efficient. So I could manage, juggle a lot of things at the same time. And they call it um, saving steps. Um, And so that, you know, if you had to go back to the kitchen to get someone's salad, you might as well get the bread roll or the drink (laughs) at the same time so that you're saving steps. And so I was always able to juggle, um, you know, a, a high number of tables and keep people happy and, um, and all of that. I worked at fancy restaurants. So um, the one in Boston, it's no longer there, but it was only open Monday through Friday. So they didn't want the weekend crowd, um, people that, yeah, and it had yeah, 600 wines on the wine list and we wore white gloves and silver service right. and in Bosch. And um, so I'm sure I learned a lot of appreciation for fine dining, for good wines. Um, mm-hmm. And just for pe- 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 being, um, 
yeah, treating people with respect. Um, they were there for an occasion. It was discretionary income. And so that needed to be respected. There's some incredible snobs too. And, um, yeah. you know, biting your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it seems to me in the event organizing and the philanthropy work that you've been involved yeah. in and all those other things, there's a lot of people skills that are needed. And sure. so just, yeah. it's always yeah. fun for me to just hear when people are telling their story and maybe even you hadn't reflected on it as much, you know, but thinking about what are the skills that you've learned through your life and then what's been applicable later on. Um, yeah, I just find it interesting. That's really cool. I've never thought of it before, but of course a waitress has to anticipate what somebody wants, don't they? And they have to bring it before they're asked for it. So maybe that's one of the most important skills that mm. one can get. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And I think you have to be a good reader of body language and, and um, making f- people feel comfortable mm-hmm. welcoming them and things. Yeah. Well, we won't go further on that. It's just, I just, I'd love to podcast. We go all over the place, as you can tell. <laughs> um, so you're organizing and helping organize festivals and things. I'd like to bring us a little bit more up to date in terms of where we are. And sure. I know you've been involved um, particularly with um, here in New Zealand, a few different events. Can you just describe how you ended up in New Zealand and then some of the things that you've been involved in, particularly the competitions and, and that sort yeah, of thing? Absolutely. Um, so uh, Gordon and I, my husband and I moved to New Zealand oh, 25 years ago or so. Um, we didn't see the ability to have a an easy future, both of us living in Boston and freelancing. Um, there was a lot of snow and we're both from warmer climates. And my mother had been on sabbatical in Australia and said, why don't you guys have a look at this part of the world? And so we started just kind of casting our eyes for opportunities in um, the Southern Hemisphere. And Gordon is a rabid, was still as a rabid trout fisherman. And so there was a magazine article that kind of came up at the same time that there was a job offer in Auckland. And so that was was about it. Right. So (laughs) Um, fishing and a job and music and... (laughs) That was it, yeah. And not wanting to shovel snow in Boston. Um, Yeah, so we came, he came about four months ahead of me because I was at this music festival running the production and artistic side of it in Breckenridge. Um, So he came ahead and Stephen, I honestly, it was such a memorable experience. He picked me up from the airport and those flights that come in from North America always arrive at dawn. And so I could look out the window and see the outline of the Hauraki Gulf and the North Island and um, beautiful. And I was intrigued and I stepped out of the airport and I swear I felt this taproot just diving in. And it was the most visceral kind of, I'm here, I'm where I need to be experience I've ever had in my life. Um, And we haven't looked back. You know, this has been home since that very first week. Um, Amazing. So even as you're stepping off of the plane, you're breathing the air for the first time, you know. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt connected to the earth and to the environment and you write those sounds that first morning that I woke up um you know the birds noise was completely different than I'd heard before and it just yeah it just it absolutely resonated with me it was it was perfect I knew I was where I needed to be yeah and New Zealand's been great for us you know it's um it's given both of us an amazing professional 
life, um, Gordon's principal double bass in the orchestra here in Auckland. Um, and I've had just the privilege of serving as the, you know, the senior leader in a lot of the cultural and some major events in Auckland and in New Zealand. And that, that's been, I came as a cellist, you know, I came with my cello on my back and did a lot of playing and played in a couple of orchestras and did a lot of teaching, mm. but I fell back again into arts management. There was a job yeah. that was going at the Auckland Philharmonia um, in the role that designs the concerts, works with the conductors and comes up with the repertoire and shapes the artistic program and so I did that for a couple of years and started the violin competition with Michael and Christine Hill during that time Mm. and um, so just talk us through you know you've just arrived and you're putting down your taproot as you (laughs) love that description Um, it actually reminds me of something my mother um, used to tell me um, because I'm from America originally as well, but we moved here when I was seven years old. So yeah. I, I was very, very young. So this has been my Turanga YY, my place, you know, from a very young age. But yeah. he had moved around a lot. She had lived in Italy, in Panama, in America, oh, all over oh. the world. And she said that she felt like she was a pot plant, that you could pick her up oh. and move her around, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to a tree, which, you know, has yeah. the deep, deep roots. Um, and so that was a helpful analogy or a picture for our family that we could move if we needed to. And mm-hmm. I've gone on to live in six different countries, you know, feeling like the pot plant, but kind of like you recently moved back to New Zealand or well, four years ago mm-hmm. and really felt like now's the time to put those deeper roots and, you know, the, the tap root that, yeah. that gets sunk into the place. And so this is a long lead up, but I'm just mm-hmm. curious since you, you felt so connected and knew, that you wanted to be here. How did you go about building the relationships and starting to look for those opportunities? And it sounds like you got connected in, you know, to help yeah. shape things. You Were you taking an active approach with that, I guess, or, or what was happening? Well, some of it was being in the right place at the right time. Um, I did have, when I um, applied for and was hired as the Auckland Philharmonia's general manager, that was quite a rigorous, mm-hmm recruitment process and international search. Um, So that one was earned. Um, And then some of the other roles. So I was their um, general manager, which was the highest position in the orchestra at the time, Um, I think for about four and a half years. And um, then left when I was seven months pregnant and turning 40 and thought, good, (laughs) perfect timing. And then um, some things just kind of, I don't want to say they came to me. Do you remember, and it was probably before you got here, there was one of the banks that run this ad, that ran this television advert. And um, some guy was talking about some holiday he and his family were taking. And his colleague said, oh, you're so lucky. And the point, the message was, it's not, it's not luck. You know, you have to, you have to plan your luck kind of thing. Yeah. So I was. Luck happens open. to the people who work pretty hard, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, so I'm sure that's what it is. And I had good credentials, and I knew arts management quite well at that stage, yeah. um, and just in the right place at the right time, also. But I was invited to on several occasions. I've been invited to consult or to give advice to an organization, 
and then they like the advice and they say, well, would you deliver it? And then I end up staying for a while. So I've, right. I've seen that now with, oh gosh, four organizations that I've led. So I haven't started off, you know, with a kind of a black and white appointment, but um, they've all, they've all characteristically needed an, an overhaul of some sort. And right. so I've done it from within basically. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so some of the, the great kind of household names that um, most recently I'm just wrapping up my contract with the museum of the year program, mm-hmm. um, finishing that up next week, that contract and write the author writers readers festival and New Zealand sculpture on shore. And um yeah, so that's See, the problem here is that we could go for an hour on any of those topics, <laughs> any <laughs> know, of those different initiatives, because I'm really curious yeah. and interested in, you know, New Zealand of the year. Maybe we'll come back to it in a little bit, but sure. I would like to chat briefly uh, just on the violin competition yeah. and how did, how did that originate? Like, it's, Again, just you know, amazing. We're here in New Zealand and, and there's yeah. a major violin competition um, so yeah. what were the circumstances that led to that because I'm, I'm just curious so this is when I was designing the concert programs at the Philharmonia and I was still playing a lot of cello and I'd been on a I was in an ensemble that was coming back from a trip with a violinist named Miranda Adams and she's from Dunedin and she told me mm. that in the recent days she'd been down in Queenstown and she'd done a duet concert with Michael Hill who had been a violinist when he was a child um, and he had had kind of rediscovered his love with the violin and was coming back to it and that they went for a walk around Lake Hayes the next day and he happened to mention to her that he'd like to get in behind a violin competition and she happened to mention it to me right and i took it from there um i was at the you know the orchestra where i worked very entrepreneurial approach um i had a great you know colleagues and managers around me at that time and they said let's do it and so i still had this little blue piece of paper that um said michael hill rang he's going to be in auckland can he come and see you ever and his phone number so he and his wife and son arrived at the office and an hour later we were you know it was gonna happen wow isn't it amazing how things you know know. those chance the luck the, Mm. the the chance meeting of this and this and this and and then something results. What what was his motivation? Do you think behind wanting to do something like that, um, Michael Hill? I'm I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, well, so I know he's written several books about this. Um, an extraordinary man. He grew up this scrawny little kid in Whangarei, You know, rugby crazy Whangarei, mm-hmm. and um, didn't fit in with the rugby scene there. But there was a very good music teacher at his school who said, "Hey, you with me? Come on in here. Be a music student." And so he did, and he found that that's what he loved, um, really loved. And um, his parents, you know, I think there was some musical, his dad might have been a pianist. I'm not quite sure I remember the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was music lessons and appreciation, but it wasn't a career path. And so they gave their son, Michael, one chance to, you know, if you could win this competition, then we'll take it seriously. And it was New Zealand Herald competition years ago. And he came in fourth and they said that wasn't good enough. So they sent him off to be an apprentice with his uncle, who was a watchmaker. And 
you know, his life hasn't turned out too badly since then. Yeah. But you ask his motivation. Yeah. yeah, it's not only like a seriously um, authentic love for the violin, um, but wanting to give something back to kids that, you know, were like him but hadn't been given the opportunity. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. In fact, I'm quite sure that at the time he didn't envisage any kind of major international event um, that was not organic. We decided early on it was going to be an international event. Mm. Um, but I don't think either one of us could have anticipated it was going to be as successful mm. as it has been. Um, and yeah. so, so can you just describe, because not all of us listening will, will be as yeah. familiar with what's happened, yeah. um, exactly yeah. what's happened, what have been some of the positive outcomes and, and where is it at today? You know, yeah. is it, has it been 20 years now or when? Yeah. 20, yeah. Every, yeah, every second year in... Queenstown and Auckland, we host what ends up being one of the top handful of violin competitions in the world is here in New Zealand, and it's this Michael Hill. Um, the things that have made it exceptional, um, we have always flown the semi-finalists to New Zealand to compete, so it's, it's not been, we've paid for that, which meant that anybody that, you know, can pass the very rigorous audition Yep. get invited, not just the people whose families can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then put them in front of a really amazing international panel of judges and some excellent um, tools, voting tools and guiding tools for them to make a, a, a very good and informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a couple of pieces of good luck. You know, our very first winner, um, Joseph Lynn, um, was appointed the first violinist of the Juilliard String Quartet after he was with us. So that's a big kind of credential. Another of our winners, Ming Fang, has gone on to have a you know big internationally renowned career. Um, and all of our, we've had 10 winners now, they're all completely different from one another. And so that speaks to a degree of integrity about not just looking for cookie cutters, the same kind of violinist, but they've, you know, one is the concert master of the Czech Philharmonic, a soloist, pedagogues, um, one is an internet sensation. <laughs> um, so it just illustrates the various different pathways that musicians can, well, before COVID-19 can learn um, can make a living and have a really rich career. Things are very challenging now um, yeah. for performing artists, of course, particularly the ones that have toured around the world and making their living concertizing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So okay. it's been, it's been a, a gift. And the other big kind of step was we were one of the first that, um, I can't be sure that we were the first in New Zealand, certainly the first in Queenstown that started live streaming. So we've been live streaming the event for years and um, building up a huge following. And our, I think we had 1.3 million viewers of the last event. So we have to present in the physical space because there's a live audience, but also in the digital space. And right. uh, that has to be very slick, high production value. It's recognizing the value of technology. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And talk about, you know, that's what everybody's grappling with and understanding and benefiting from right now is um, the digital space has been mm. enormous upheaval and transformation and will continue. You know, it's not going anywhere now for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you seem to have carved out a space in the creative um, and, you know, music sector. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the value that you think that provides to our society? 
it's a really big picture question. Um, but you know, you, you've, you've been doing this for decades. There must be underlying foundational reasons why you yeah. see value in it. What is it? Because it sounds like you know the writers' festival is that's quite different to a violin, yeah. you know, co um, competition, which is quite different to organizing a music festival. But underlying it all is this sort of recognition of the arts and performance and. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think probably to be fair, the arts have been a huge contributor to my original DNA, but I've also worked in philanthropy and in education and um, um, a lot of governance um, kind of work as well. So that my DNA is, is arts in the cultural sector, but I'm, I'm more interested about breaking down these walls and these silos between it and the other parts of society. Yep. So I think if you were to have asked me that question two months ago, before this COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. I would think that the advantages that creativity and that the arts have are because of a response or a, um, a different way, recognizing that technology is so much a part of what we do and we're racing so quickly in the technology field and artificial intelligence is taking so many jobs. But the one thing that a robot will never do is make art or reproduce art. Um, so that to me signaled a renaissance for the arts that is similar to we had this locavore kind of movement about wanting to eat, um, eat locally. I thought that there would be a real renaissance for the arts, people saying enough technology, I want a real experience, I want an authentic experience, I want something that I can't get from a screen or from a robot, something that only a human being can deliver. Yeah. Then enter COVID-19 and we realize that we are, you know, we're physically isolated from one another and the arts will definitely, where before I think, Arts were the antidote to technology. Mm. Um, I think now arts are going to be frontline workers because they will be leading, the creatives will be leading the way um, about understanding the human expression and articulating that in ways that um, will mean something to us um, and, and, and giving us tools to express it and ways to experience it and reflect upon it and understand it. Mm. So I, I do think that the arts are incredibly well positioned right now, yet we have to be very careful. And I say we now putting myself in this sector have to be very careful to not assume that there's a, a wall that separates arts from non-arts. And that has to be both directions. Mm. You know, arts have always, or creative has always looked outward to corporate sponsors or donors or audience members saying, feed us. Um, you know, we're worthy and we need to be fed. Um, however, there's so much value that creatives have that can influence the other sector. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of reading last year and had considered a PhD and ended up not going that route, but about the characteristics of creatives and how they would be so beneficial mm -hmm. in other environments, whether it's governance or, or um, corporates or policymakers or the commercial world. Um, you know, I think if I could, if I could have a lasting tombstone statement, it would be that creatives are you know, the target for 
corporate boards. Mm. You know, we've got the ethnic diversity. We've got the gender diversity. How about some mindset diversity, guys? You know, how about looking at things creatively and out of the box and with imagination instead of just the same kind of rigid um, systems that they've been in. So that's my big hoary goal is <laughs> to infuse um, infuse the mindset of some of the decision makers that are influential in this country and elsewhere um, to draw upon the specific soft skills mm. that are absolutely inherent in creatives. Mm. So whether it's resilience, self-awareness, um, you know, the ability to take on criticism you know you you say to a dancer at age seven and 17 and 27 do it this way do it this way not good enough not good enough do it again and you know what they pick themselves up and they do it and they figure it out well how do you apply that then to an office to yeah. a employee you know recruiters are saying they want soft skills um well yeah mm. Yeah. No, I hear you. I yeah. agree. I agree completely. I, one of my purposes of the podcast is to break down the barriers that mm. people listening to you would have a preconception, but now they're getting a different perspective, you know, and, and I think that's about telling the stories and I'm just the value of the arts. Um, I do. I love family history. So my <laughs> great grandfather was, he loved to play the piano and when his um, fourth daughter was born, um, so it was in time sort of early 1920s, you know, long time ago. In other words, he wrote a little song for her. And it's a beautiful piece on the piano. And it captures the, you can just tell when, when it's played, the emotion, the joy, the experience that he'd gone through back in 1920, whatever it was when he wrote it. Wow. If it's played today, it still resonates. It's still, it's like, that's a beautiful melody, you know? And, and so I just love that. And then thinking about some of the names you were mentioning, you know, Bach and Brahms and all these people who lived a long time ago, and yet we can appreciate something gets passed on, you know, um, beyond interest rates and figures <laughs> and uh, the things that we tend yeah. to focus on. I know. There's real beauty and uh, it's important, I think. <laughs> Well, absolutely. You know, and, and something, a, you know, a cantata by Bach, it has survived 400 years it, because, mm. damn it, it's good. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and there probably was a lot of music composed 400 years ago that was crap, but we, that didn't survive. So the stuff that we hear now is we're hearing it because it's exquisite and it's excellent. And yeah. there's music that's being composed now mm. and art that's being created and stories that are being written um, you know, some will not last the test of time, but the real gems will. And so in 400 years, uh, yeah. we'll be reading and listening and, and observing and reflecting on the art that's being created today. That's right. And this podcast is a form of art. So maybe someone one day will listen to us talking. Yeah. And say, oh, look what they were talking about in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now it's mandatory in the boards yeah. to have someone with a musical. I know. <laughs> and, and we really have to understand that as we've been in this lockdown now, um, every single piece of entertainment that we've been enjoying and pulling us through, all created by artists, you know? Yeah. And so that gives me confidence that it will be recognized and valued, but 
not if we don't do this smartly. You know, if we just assume, again, I'm putting myself in this wee silo, that people know what we do um, and will appreciate it, that, that's not going to be sufficient. It needs to yeah. have some loud mouths actually pointing out the obvious. Yeah. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to all of the different initiatives that you've been part of, because that oh. way people can go and they can find out more, because we can't talk about each of them. But I'm oh. quite curious about, because we had a conversation earlier um, in the week about yeah. what you're doing now. Right. So yeah. I'd be really interested in finding out, um, you know, You've, we've talked about what you've been doing, but where do you see yourself moving forward in the future and what type of organizations are you hoping to work with and help? And also we'll put a link to your website once it's ready in oh, the show notes so people can thank find you. it. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious. Cheers. Thanks, Stephen. Um, well, my lockdown experience has been um, having the headspace in the time um, and a lot of time walking when I do my best thinking about actually crystallizing and formalizing what I've been doing. So over the last year, I've been, you know, advising, consulting, um, mentoring half a dozen organizations, some quite big that have been a big time commitment, like the New Zealander of the Year Awards, but others that have been more collegial, some formal, some informal. Um, but what I'm keen to do is to reach more people than I've been doing in the past. When you work as, and you lead an organization, you give that organization everything you've got and all of your creative energy. And it's great. Um, and so I can do that from the inside, but I'd really like to be able to help more people now. Um, and so the, what I've learned about myself is I'm very good at diagnosing and understanding situations and then having a very clear picture and a vision and kind of seeing the pathway laid out. It's just, you know, you, you turn 15, you learn a little bit about yourself along the way. Um, and so that's something that I would like to be able to give back. Um, I've had, you know, wonderful two and a half decades here in New Zealand and then 10 years in the States before. Um, I'd like to give that back now to the to the industry and to the not-for-profit industry, you know, the education or the youth services or a lot of the um, charities that I've come in contact with. Um, I'm wanting to do this in a way that can give them a fresh set of eyes, a bit of confidence, a bit of guidance, maybe some systems that can help them do things better or maybe just a complete different paradigm. Um, you know, so often in the charity sector there's a you know somebody who's incredibly impassioned or a board that's impassioned and that energy is exciting and it may not have perspective and so what we're learning through this COVID experience is that we all have to do things much differently and what used to take months now takes weeks what used to take weeks now takes days um, so nimbleness um, agility fleet-footedness, um, a bit of courage, but some real pragmatism, obviously. So that's really where I want to return um, some value to organizations or individuals that are confronted with 
um, not knowing what the future is going to look like and help. Yeah. And what, what shape is that taking for you? I, I think you've got a new name and a oh, website, Well, I started right? off with a, a project name. I was looking for some government funding, and I haven't heard the result of this yet. But even if with that, so the project name was Take Kayarahi, so um, the guide or the escort or the mentor. Um, right. So that's where I started and then didn't want to inappropriately appropriate a name. Um, you know, I don't want to be an interloper. Or, um, I obviously wasn't raised as a Maori here in New Zealand, so um, I'm still working on kind of a better name. I do have a website, but um, it's not easy to find at the moment. I need to go through all the SEO stuff, but I'm getting there in a couple of days. It will be. Yeah. But it, you can find it on tekaiahi.nz, so it's there. And basically, it's advisory services. So whether it's governance, um, helping boards have the tools, um, strategy and business planning, um, I'm very good at and natural at doing that, but also some of the more pragmatic stuff, finances, um, you know, understanding the, the balance sheet and what, where are cost savings, efficiencies, um, how do you do cash flow, all of those sorts of things that CEOs learn because we're generalists. We know how to do it and yeah. we know how to build marketing plans and stakeholder communication plans and fundraising. And so we do it all. Um, but I'd like to be able to help organizations by actually doing it hands on. I think, you know, there's so many wonderful resources available on the internet and libraries and books to read. Um, you know, you can, anyone can learn how to do a business plan or to do a marketing plan. But what happens is when you're at the call face, um, you don't have the time necessarily to do the learning and the research and then synthesize it and apply it. So by saying, I know how to do that, um, let's do it specifically for your needs or your cause, we'll get you there faster. You know, if, you know, a day or two sitting alongside somebody and, and leaving behind, here are the tools you need. They're set up for you. Now go populate it. I'll check in with you next week and make sure you've done it. it just gives people a shortcut um, that they know works because somebody who understands it has done it copious yeah. times um, and then just hands it to them. Populated. Let's let's do it. Go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, the thing I like to hear is your enthusiasm for the sector, the desire to give back, but also this concept of going across the sector. You know, and I think the unique thing that you would bring is the experience, the actual practical experience of having run the violin competition for twenty years. You know, and then the other things that you've been involved in with festivals and other things. So yeah, what we'll do is put a link in the show notes and then people oh, can thanks. look it up and find out more. But the aim for the podcast is really to try to help summarize a person's life. So mm -hmm. we've been talking for only an hour, but I think people who are listening will have a sense of who you are, you know, which is often more important than what the CV says. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. How, how people express right. themselves and things. So right. yeah. 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 Yeah, but I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation and hearing about your background, you know, right right from the early days, being yeah. four years old and learning <laughs> Italian, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, exactly. and, and you just never know where things lead. You know, you've had an international life. and um, But, you know, the, hearing about Yo-Yo Ma inputting into your life, you know, and, and my challenge for the people who are listening is how can we each be that person how can we look to the next generation or the young people in our lives mm -hmm. who haven't found their path yet and actually say 
why don't you try this? Send me a tape of your music and I'll listen yeah. to it and I'll open some doors for you. Um, and, and that's kind of um, one of the big takeaways for me. So hopefully the listeners um, yeah. can, can learn from that too. Well, he's, he's a legend, old yo-yo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Stephen, thank you. It's been an absolute joy. It's been very nice. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Anne. I know for me there were several things that stood out, in particular her love of music, and I thought it was really cool how she's been able to transform her love of the creative arts into a career, and it will be exciting to see what she does next. Make sure to check out her website in the show notes as well. Until next time. Oh,